I am Emily Lyons. In 2009, without a high school degree and no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. But since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be lifted and shifted by these people too. After all, all inspiring people are inspired people. So get ready to be inspired. This is Mind Your Business. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. What's been going on? (laughs) You know what? It's been busy. Like kids stuff, work stuff. It's kind of a never-ending hamster wheel. (laughs) Yeah. 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 How are you? How was your long weekend? It was good. Yeah, it was long. (laughs) We went up to North Bay. So the drive from Stratford was very long. What's in North Bay Cottage or? Just family. Family. Yeah. So we were visiting and yeah. Nice. Nice. Cool. Well, I'm excited to be here. I've been listening to a couple of your previous podcast episodes and I love the content that you're putting out there. So yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy you could join. So we'll kick it off. And Eric, my friend, how would you introduce yourself? uh, Well, I mean, from a professional standpoint, um, I have worked in the communications and public relations industry for the past 15 years. I've worked on the agency side, I've worked on the corporate side, and worked uh, pretty extensively in not-for-profit as well. So kind of a storyteller, I guess, by trade. And really, you know, that's kind of the professional side of me. And I always say like, there's, you know, what you do, and then there's kind of who you are. And I would say that who I am, first and foremost, is a dad. So I have two young kids. My son, Benjamin, is six. My daughter, Samantha, is four. Big time, you know, family man, uh, which is great. And, you know, as we'll probably chat about a little later on, it's something that I never really sort of anticipated for myself growing up with cystic fibrosis and and kind of living with that reality from pretty much the age of five when I was diagnosed. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of living a dream right now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, so what year were you born? I was born in 85. 80? Oh, me too. Yeah. Fellow 85-er. (laughs) Yeah. So what was, when you were born in 85, and I guess when they diagnosed you five years later, do you remember what the life expectancy was around then? You know what? I mean, it wasn't something that I was aware of at the time, but more recently, I have obviously gone back and just out of curiosity more than anything else, sort of looked into, you know, what was the life expectancy in 85? And, you know, the number is kind of in and around 16 years of age, which is pretty crazy. And I think, you know, for me now, especially having you know, become a dad over the last six years, it kind of put things into a whole new for me to understand like what my parents went through. You know, you have your first child, it's, you know, everything that you ever dreamed of. And then within the first few years, you find out that child is terminally ill and likely won't make it, you know, to high school. It's really kind of, you know, changed the way that I think about that whole experience. Wow. And, you know, something that's always really inspired and and blown me away with you is how much you do with having CF. Like I remember years ago, all the education you were posting about constantly and all the work you've done both professionally and personally. I mean, you had a charity for years and all of that and you're a family man. And then I see so many people that 
want to do half of what you've done, but they make all these excuses. How do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't always go as planned. Like I am definitely the type of guy that will take on far too much and then try to figure out how to manage it all, which has (laughs) kind of been, you know, my, I guess, saving grace in the long run, but also has been really challenging at times. So I think for me, It goes back again, like to my parents. I really give them a lot of credit. When I was born, I really think they had a choice. You know, you can sort of put your child in a bubble and you can really sort of try to protect them and and keep them sort of safe and sort of protected from, you know, viruses, colds, illness, whatever the case is when you're dealing with the child with CF. My parents, I think, for the most part, took sort of the opposite view. And they said, listen, you are a totally normal kid. You are going to do normal things. You just happen to have, you know, cystic fibrosis. And so from a very young age, I sort of had the mentality that, you know, I can do whatever anybody else does and I should be doing whatever anybody else does. So that has kind of carried through into adolescence and then into sort of, you know, my more formative years. So even if it's something like, you know, going to university or pursuing a career or certainly like getting married, that was a big one. I know a lot of people that are obviously living with terminal illnesses that's a real contentious point because it's like, is that a selfish act to sort of, you know, bring somebody else into the fold when you know potentially your time is limited? And definitely when I went through the process of like having children and making that decision, you know, there was a lot of factors to weigh. But, you know, in my case, I'm really lucky because, you know, five or 10 years ago, along came this remarkable medication and this medication that actually corrected the faulty gene that causes CF. And so, I was really, I think, living on borrowed time for the most part. And, you know, luckily, sort of research and treatment caught up with me. And, you know, I think there's no better time for a CF patient to be living than right now because we have access to treatments and new medications that, for all intents and purposes, really kind of allow you to live a normal life. So, you know, I'm happy that I took on all that I did, even though it was difficult at times, because I think now that I've got access to these new treatments and I'm living a relatively normal life, I don't have to look back with regret and say, man, I wish I would have done that. You know, I wish I would have taken that risk. So yeah. You must have a pretty strong mindset. I mean, I'm sure there's days where you just feel crummy and you don't want to do anything. I mean, I know I have those days and I don't even have an illness. Totally. And you know what, like full transparency, there are, there's so many days, right? And uh, I think to, like to the, you know, to the outside world, I tend to paint like a pretty good picture of what my life is like, right? And if you're looking at me from sort of the outside looking in, you know, I've got a good career, I've got a family, I've got kids, and it all seems great. But there are definitely days, I mean, you know, you have lived in an experienced CF it is a nasty disease. And whether it's, you know, managing hospitalizations or having to deal with home IVs or having sort of all these side effects from, you know, the decades and decades of being on these really harsh medications, you know, I live all of that. And there are definitely days when I am like in bed and that's just my sort of rest and recuperation. That's the way I look at it is there's days where I'm going to have, you know, very little to give. But then the days that I am feeling well and I I can sort of, you know, get out there and get at it, I try to make the best of those days and really compensate for the days that I know will be coming where I'm kind of, you know, in that resting recuperation mode. I love that. You let yourself go down when you need to and rest, but you don't stay down. You get back up. Yeah. And I think it's a good sort of, you know, mentality for everybody, regardless of whether or not you have CF. Everybody has good days and bad days. And 
you know, I think it's about giving 100% of yourself all the time, regardless if your 100% is, you know, just maybe watching Netflix and relaxing and, you know, taking some time for yourself or getting out there and hustling and building a business and growing your career. You know, every day looks different and uh, everybody's 100% is going to change from sort of day to day, week to week. I make the mistake of when I'm not feeling 100% of like trying to push through and then you do that half-ass work where it's like just brutal. It's like, just let yourself rest and do the work properly. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like it's a learning curve, right? And I think, you know, looking at, again, people with CF, I just feel like we are a very resilient bunch and we're really innovative because, you know, we've all heard of like spoon theory and this notion that you've got to sort of prioritize your time, prioritize the amount that you have to give, because if you take on too much and sort of overextend yourself, then you know, everything you do is going to be impacted. So I think I learned from a really younger age that I have to kind of prioritize things and I have to understand like, what is the most important to me? And then what are the things that I might have to sort of put on the back burner? And so for me as a dad, it's like, you know, family has to be number one. And then right up there behind that is my health, right? I have to prioritize my health or everything else just falls apart. And so that includes you know, several hours a day of treatment. It includes kind of, you know, 60 pills a day that I take on a regular basis, going to all my doctor's appointments, making sure that I'm kind of, you know, adhering to my therapy. It's a lot. And certainly it's something that I'm so tempted at times to just like skip, right? It would be great to skip a day to wake up and just be able to say, I'm going to jump out of bed and get into my work clothes and drive to work, right? And that is just not my reality. So just being adherent, staying to that, I think has been a real big challenge, but a real reason why I've been able to stay so healthy. Mm, It's that discipline. Yeah. Mm. We take for granted so much health. I don't like spending hours a day doing treatment. I can't, I But you know what? At the same time, it's like I've done it since I was six, right? And so for a lot of, I think, folks who live with CF, as much as it's a pain in the ass and it it can become overbearing, it's also just your reality. It's like brushing your teeth. You know, it's just something that you know you have to do. I have to have an extra hour in the morning to do my treatments and make sure that I put myself in a good spot to sort of have a good day. And so It's funny because to someone on the outside, like that seems very overwhelming. But for me, it's just kind of, it's my normal. Yeah. Yeah. My brother, I I have to have him listen to this episode because he just gets so down in this poor me attitudes. And I'm always saying to him, you are so much better off than so many CF patients that we've lost over the years that are have had to go through lung transplants and all of this. Switch your your mindset. I had him start doing a gratitude journal, which was so simple, but it's helped for sure. But he definitely has those days of, I'm not doing my therapy. I'm not taking my pills. (laughs) And yeah, for those listening that don't know, my brother has CF as well. And so we've got that connection there. But yeah, definitely. But you know what? It's also hard too, because like as much as, you know, you can have that mindset and you can sort of look at yourself and say, you know, I've got it. I've got it better than others. At the end of the day, it's still a brutal disease to manage. And regardless of if you are on the transplant list or if you are, you know, managing all right, it's still like very overwhelming. And it's really easy to fall down into that rabbit hole of, you know, sort of feeling bad about yourself. And it happens to, to everybody. I think it's just a matter of, you know, being able to sort of pull yourself 
out of that mindset. And again, like you said, being grateful, I think is a really great strategy to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And you have to actively be grateful too, right? Like I definitely am a big yeah. proponent of journaling and just actually like putting yourself in a spot where you have to think about what it is you're grateful for. And that it can in and of itself really help to change your mindset and pull you out of that funk. And you know, him and I had this conversation once of like, he's like, aren't you angry? Aren't you upset about everything that's happened to our family, losing our mom, losing our sister? And I said to him, well, we can either, you know, spend every day thinking about that and being upset and spend our lives being upset and miserable, or we can focus on the good things that we have and have had and spend our life trying to be as happy as possible. I mean, what sounds more appealing to you? Because you can either choose to suffer. And I know some days it's not a choice, but I choose to try to actively focus on the good, make my life good. I mean, and it's true, right? Because at the end of the day, like life goes on without you, regardless of how you feel, what you decide, like how you decide to sort of manage your guilt or your anger, life is going to continue to move on. And all of a sudden you'll look back and say, geez, it's been 20 years of resentment and anger. And it's just, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to be in that position where I look back and say, I wish I would have changed my mindset. I wish I would have taken that time that I had and used it more productively. But I totally get it's like, it's really an easier thing to say than it is to do at times. (laughs) Absolutely. So now you've started your own business, The Bauer Group. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. So what led to this? What was the point where you were like, okay, I need to start this company? It's kind of been a long path. So uh, as I said, I've worked in communications uh, and and public relations for 15 years or so. And I've always kind of worked on the agency side or the corporate side. And, you know, I have had a couple ventures into entrepreneurship. So as you mentioned, for about 10 years, I ran a really successful charity organization, the Friends for Life Foundation. Incredible. Uh, And for me, that was kind of my first introduction to entrepreneurship. And for really uh, those 10 years, we were essentially running a startup. It was, uh, you know, me and a small team uh, of good friends that were responsible for everything from sort of sales, promotion, operations, accounting. Uh, And it really kind of gave me an introduction to what that lifestyle is like. And I mean, it's super addictive, right? As you know, when you're in the sort of uh, the rush of being able to build something and create something and watch it grow and then watch it kind of culminate and succeed, there's like no better dopamine hit than watching that and being a part of that. So I kind of knew that it was always something that I wanted to do. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the sort of, you know, security uh, and the sort of the pressure to adhere to, you know, a sort of a normal career path. And for me, I took a couple of years and I did some consulting and I, I sort of got a bit of a taste of what it would be like to start my own business, but I never fully committed to it. And and then I think over the last year, certainly like through COVID, as we all I think reevaluated our situations, we reevaluated, you know, what does work mean to me? What does this look like? And I kind of made the decision, this is kind of a now or never moment where if I actually want to do it, I mean, I'm in my late 30s, going to be 40 soon. Now's the time. And if it doesn't work out, it is what it is. You know, we'll uh, we'll sort of um, maybe make another decision down the road, but I've really been happy with it. And I've been so overwhelmed by like support and sort of embraced by other people that are fellow entrepreneurs and fellow business owners. So yeah, I'm super thrilled that I've made the decision. Being in communications for so long now, how have you seen it evolve over the years? 
Ooh, yeah. I mean, like, listen, when I got my first agency job, I remember having conversations with clients about the importance of having a social media strategy. <laughs> and so many of my clients would say, no, this is like a passing phase. Like, we don't feel like we need to invest in this, right? Uh, That's and, so funny. And, and literally, that was kind of where when I started my career was like, you know, social media was just becoming sort of a mainstream consumer reality. And now here we are 15 years later. Later, and it's like we're dealing with AI, we're dealing with these sort of, you know, blurred lines between owned content, paid content, you know, what does that look like? And just the way that people consume media is very different as well, right? I mean, I can count on probably like one hand the number of my friends that read a newspaper or even pay for for like a cable TV package. So it's definitely shifted big time over the last 15 years. Yeah, I have neither of those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was funny. When we were kids, that was the thing. So now a lot of the people that listen to the podcast, they're new entrepreneurs. I would love if you could share, you know, some simple strategies that they could implement for PR, what they could be doing because they're not yet at that point of being able to hire an agency. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's a very common situation, right? Is even for small businesses, they've uh, they've got a really innovative story to tell. They just don't have the budget or the sort of the human resources to kind of commit to actually executing a PR strategy. But I think now more than ever, I mean, we have social media, there's a real opportunity for brands to kind of have a two-way dialogue with their consumers. And, you know, traditional PR is like media relations, which is great, but in a lot of ways, you know, you don't need to be in the media to drive awareness for your brand. And you can use social media, you can use your website, you can use, you know, the assets that you have to tell your brand's story. And I think, you know, you're a great example of that, right? right? And your business, looking at the content that you create and the way that you put yourself out there as a thought leader and you kind of engage with communities that are important to you and your business. You know, I think a lot of times entrepreneurs and sort of small business owners are hesitant to do that because it feels almost overly promotional. Yeah. But, you know, if you have an interesting story to tell and you have an interesting product, it's really, it's not a promotional thing. It's about you know, sharing your story with consumers. And I think once you sort of make that shift in your mindset, you can start to really drive awareness for your brand. So even if it's things like, you know, having a blog where you write some, you know, regular thought media or thought leadership content or creating a social media account for your business and having that sort of, you know, regularly updated and just paying attention to what's being said about your industry. What are the sort of the narratives, the stories that are sort of in the news cycle and how can you kind of contribute to those? So yeah, I think it's just more than anything, it's just sort of taking that first approach. And then the other thing that I would say is, you know, now more than ever, especially in Canada, the media are looking for thought leaders. And so, you know, if you can build some relationships, if you can network, go to events, get to know who the sort of relevant media are in your industry, you know, you can contact them and reach out, send an email, send a LinkedIn message, and just introduce yourself and say, listen, this is who I am. This is my brand. Would love to talk with you more uh, if there's ever an opportunity. And that really goes was a long way too, right? It's just developing those relationships and, and getting your name, your business out there. Yeah. I find that once I've been in contact with one person for one article, they just keep reaching out to me because it's easy. Give me a call. Like, hey, I've got this article coming out tomorrow. Can you comment on it? 
Totally. And you know what? Like once you've kind of established yourself as somebody that is credible, that can give a good soundbite and that can be relied upon to sort of provide good insight, that's a win-win, right? Because it's good for you, but it's also good for the journalist or the reporter because they need those people to sort of round out their stories. So, you know, I would say a lot of people are maybe a little intimidated by that, but if you can be proactive and you can get yourself out there and make those connections, you know, it, it does go a long way. Something that I've seen a lot is people just, when they do reach out, they reach out to the wrong people. So they go and they're like, hey, I want to be in Forbes and they spam whatever writer they can find from Forbes instead of, you know, doing the research of who's actually covering your niche and finding that person specifically. A hundred percent. And so this is another just like a tip is whatever you are going to do, if you're going to sort of develop your sort of PR function within your business, you've got to do it in a strategic way, right? You've got to be informed and you've got to spend a little bit of time delving into, again, who are those key media outlets that are talking about the stories that are relative to you or related to your brand? Who are the journalists who are covering you know, your competitors and your industry. And you want to be really targeted with those, those pitches or those, those sort of um, those outreaches. And nothing will, I think, alienate you more than just sending a spam email to a hundred journalists that are not covering the beat that your brand is in, not covering the industry that your company operates in. You got to be really strategic about it. And it's no different than, you know, if you were networking or asking to sort of connect with somebody on LinkedIn for a coffee chat, you know, you would want to personalize that. You would want to make sure that you are, you know, doing some research and, and understanding, is this person the right, you know, connection based on their background, their interest, their job? You have to take that same sort of strategy to public relations and to media relations. Yeah, 100%. Even I get those spam messages that make no sense to me because they're like... <laughs> They yeah, see. totally. And like right in the delete bin, right? Like as soon as they come yeah. in, I think that's the takeaway for sure. Yeah, right in the bin. And whenever I'm creating, you know, like I'm always adding people that I could potentially collaborate with as connections on LinkedIn. And then my target is with the content that I'm creating is providing them value. So, you know, like, of course, it incorporates my story and me in some aspect, but I'm always saying to myself, asking myself, what does this do for my target audience? What, what am I doing for them? Am I teaching them something? Am I motivating them? Am I inspiring them? Am I just going to share some part of my story that maybe will resonate with them or something that could potentially be a part of a future article for them? And in that regard, a lot of them have reached out to me over the years. And then you don't have to be knocking on all those doors. And there's so many ways to do things that it just, I think it comes with that consistency and trial and error and seeing what works and doubling down on that. And <laughs> yeah. And I think that you just sort of, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head consistency, right? This is not building your presence as a thought leader or as an industry expert. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I think a lot of brands, they kind of get this, you know, thought in their head that they can, you know, pay a PR firm for three months and the PR firm is going to, you know, be able to sort of drive all this media coverage for them that is going to catapult the brand to, to new levels. And the sort of harsh reality is that it's kind of a, a long slog, right? You've got to really um, spend a lot of time, effort, and energy getting yourself out there, you know, networking, you know, building your thought leadership platform, sharing information, you know, whatever that may be with 
people in your industry that provide value, right? Like you said, understanding who your target audience is, understanding what they're looking for, what they need, what is going to benefit them, and then finding ways to kind of meet them where they are. So that I think is really important to keep in mind too, right? You want to understand it's like a marathon, not a sprint for sure. Yeah. I think that is a huge misconception. And it's also, it's expensive. It's an investment. I think it's a very worthwhile investment if you can afford it, but PR is not cheap. <laughs> like you said, it's, it's not it's, quick and there is no guarantees. Definitely, right? And it's also, I think the challenge with PR in general and like our business has always been, how do you demonstrate ROI, right? And be, there yeah. are ways that you can do it now, you know, luckily through uh, the advent of AI and, and sort of new modern media monitoring platforms. But for a long time, time, it was difficult to justify, like, what is the value of, of the thought leadership piece in a specific you know, media outlet? And what is the value of, you know, being thought of as a thought leader in the industry? And so I think once you kind of get your head around how some of those can potentially even be like intangible, you're not going to be able to measure them in specific ways all the time. You know, brands that do it well, I think would attest, there's really nothing that can boost your image and your sort of brand credibility, like sort of traditional, you know, PR and and, and being that thought leader in the space. Mm -hmm. How do you, I mean, I don't know if you actually were doing that, have done the pitching over the years where you have reached out to brands for your clients, but how do you craft a story that gets attention? that stands out? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple things, right? Number one is you have to understand that, like, if you're going to be in the media, this is not your opportunity to sell your brand, right? This is not marketing content. A lot of brands will make the mistake that they, you know, the marketing team will oversee PR and media relations. And the tendency is you take your marketing messaging and then you provide that to the media. And then you hope that the media sort of integrates that and includes that mm -hmm. in their coverage. But that is just not how it works, right? So you have to think of it as being an opportunity for you to provide valuable insight that is objective. It's not overly focused on, you know, your brand, your sort of your, your sales messaging. And so, like you said, understanding, you know, what's happening in the industry, what's happening in the news cycle, what are the sort of the key developments that journalists are already talking about? And then how can you get your brand integrated in those conversations? So I always refer to it as kind of news cycle hijacking, right? Which is if the media are already talking about something and that something is part of your core area of expertise, that's a great opportunity for you to reach out and say, listen, I know you're covering this. I know you are, you know, building out stories around whatever the topic might be. You know, our company is one of the, the industry leaders in that space. And I would love to provide my insight to you. And again, that is where the value is. It's not about, you know, promoting your brand, selling your product. It's about building your platform as a thought leader. And at the end of the day, you know, people will be attracted. If people are interested in what you're saying, they will seek out your product or your service. So that is almost, you know, secondary. But you want to think of this as an opportunity to share your expertise and kind of, you know, educate the audience. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic point. And now, have you ever managed negative PR for clients? I mean, absolutely, right? I think that is kind of a key aspect of any sort of any, certainly every agency client that I've worked with, we have dealt with whether it's crisis management or issues management. You know, I worked on the Nike business at one of my previous agencies during the Lance Armstrong doping mm -hmm. allegations. And so, you know, that was a really interesting example. I've worked with you know, large consumer packaged good products that have had to deal with product recalls. And certainly, you know, all of those situations, they are 
an opportunity to really showcase the value of communications and how important it is to be prepared to have a, a plan in place to understand how you're going to deal with those situations. Because if you are just sort of winging it when you know people are in your parking lot or the media are calling you up, you're going to be in a real bad position. So being able to predict what some of those issues are and what sort of issues may impact your business and then develop a proactive plan. I mean, that is uh, kind of the essence of, of, you know, crisis and issues management. This week with everything going on with Israel and Palestine, I've seen a lot on social media of people getting angry if you don't speak out and support one side and then the other people getting angry on the other side. And it's been very difficult to navigate. I know for me, whenever I've shared, you know, anything, I get a flood of messages of hate. And so it makes it very difficult because if you don't say anything, then your silence is saying whatever they, you know, silence is violence or whatever. But then if you do, so it's kind of this really tough situation. How would you say to navigate something like that? It is tough, right? And anything that is, you know, it's obviously a very contentious, very sensitive issue. And, you know, we've seen a lot of issues like this over the last, you know, five or six years, whether Mm -hmm. it was COVID, vaccination, certainly, you know, the war in Ukraine, and now obviously the situation with Israel. I think that, you know, you have to understand what your brand message is adding to sort of, you know, the narrative. I see too many brands that sort of, you know, they use timely situations like this as an opportunity to maybe promote something that they're doing or sort of integrate themselves into the conversation in the wrong way. And in situations like that, it's just, it's not a good, it's not a good place to be, right? So I think there are a lot of brands out there right now that are doing good things and they're, you know, they're trying to use their platforms to raise awareness around the issues or raise funds around the issues. And I think that is totally legitimate and a really good uh, thing for brands to do. But it has to be selfless, right? Again, the idea here cannot be the promotion of your brand or you know positioning your brand with the mindset that you're just trying to use your platform to help to sort of shine a spotlight on some of the key issues. And beyond that, you want to sort of stay out of it as much as you can, I think. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a really good point is coming to it from just a genuinely good place wanting to help. Because you do see that with a lot of brands where they jump on this. I see that especially, you know, like around Pride Month is now all of a sudden all these brands support it and they're they're changing all their colors and they're creating all these new products. And it's like, that's just so wrong. Well, we saw this too, right? Like, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon where I think about like the breast cancer phenomenon. And we went through a period there, I don't know, a decade ago where, you know, every brand from the NFL to, you know, every consumer packaged good company was putting out pink products and and claiming that they were supporting breast cancer. At the end of the day, you know, it was a nice sentiment, but the actual impact on breast cancer and on research and treatment and funding, I think you could argue was probably relatively minimal in the grand scheme of how much, you know, awareness was being put out there and how much was actually being done. And that was kind of been since dubbed as pinkwashing, right? So a good example of how, you know, things like that can really sort of, you know, I guess escalate and uh, and you've got to understand, you know, what is the sort of the key point of being involved in a campaign like that? Yeah. It just it just becomes, yeah, so fake and virtue signaling. But yeah, you're, I mean, at the end of the day, but hopefully the right sentiment is there. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So with all the changes happening with AI and all of that, what are some of the emerging trends that you think are going to, or that have happened that you're excited about? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely like in my industry, it's a very interesting time, right? Because I mean, on one end of the spectrum, AI is revolutionizing, um, you know, content development. And I think um, there are even in, it's, it's it's really seemed like over the last, you know, six months, a lot of brands are really feeling like they need to jump on the AI bandwagon and they need to integrate AI into their business model. And I think the challenge with AI, certainly right now, is that, yes, it does create very good sort of average generic content. But if you're looking to create really good content, really solid content that resonates with your target audience, I think there's still a lot of value in having someone there to sort of put the human touch on 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 your content, right? So I think for my industry and probably for a lot of industries, AI is going to be just part of the toolkit moving forward, right? You know, it is almost in some ways like having a really smart, really effective personal assistant that can help you with your daily tasks. I know I use it in my business already, you know, for things like building out, um, you know, frameworks for client proposals. I use it for building out, you know, brainstorming session ideas. I use it in in sort of several different ways. And certainly even when I teach, so I teach at York University and I teach a class in communication strategy and we've integrated it into the curriculum because I think moving forward, it is going to be such a critical piece of that communicator's toolkit to understand, you know, how can I use AI? What are the limitations of AI? And how can I, you know, do my job better because I understand what AI can do? And I think there's going to be a real sort of chasm between people that, you know, embrace it and sort of make an attempt to understand it and integrate it into their day-to-day role and people that just decide, you know, this is maybe not something that I'm super interested in. And it's, you know, we tar- started off the conversation talking about when I started in the uh, the comms world, how social media was just sort of becoming a phenomenon And it's the same situation in a lot of ways, right, where uh, this is just a new powerful tool that communicators can use to sort of craft stories and tell their message. So I'm a big proponent of it. I think the cool thing is right now you have an opportunity to get in on the ground floor and really, you know, understand the technology. And certainly, I think over the next, I think even month by month right now, it's changing so much and improving so much. So it will be interesting to see, um, you know, what that looks like in one year, two years, three years down the line. Yeah. I use ChatGPT a lot and I like to use it like I'll write something and then have it edit it. Or I I mean, like I'm guilty of putting out a bunch of emails and I sometimes they're too, like there's not enough emotion or something there. Like I get into that groove and I'm just churning out emails. And sometimes I read back and I'm like, wow, I sound cold. It's not how I mean to. So sometimes I'll call me in and say, make this friendlier. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And then I, and then I use that certain aspects of it. But I find when I do get it to generate unique content for me. I'm always going back to it and saying, make this more human. It sounds too much like AI. Yeah. And I think that's like, you know what, that's for me, that's what the platform is good at right now is it gives you kind of that starting point, whether it's a rough draft or a framework, you know, and then you can take that and say, okay, I like this part of it. I want to sort of expand on another part of it. And you've got to obviously make sure that you are creating your own unique content. You're not just leveraging that content, you know, as it stands. Because I do think that increasingly now I'm seeing a lot of content, whether it's on social or LinkedIn or even in sort of brand marketing message. And it's very obvious that some of that content is AI generated. I think as kind of consumers of information, 
we're starting to get a feel for what that looks like. And it's going to become very obvious, you know, what is AI generated and what has actually been written by, you know, someone that has a good understanding of the brand and the audience. And so I think that'll be another interesting development over the next few years. I notice a lot of comments that I get from people on LinkedIn are you can tell that the comment was generated by AI, that they plug it in and like, respond to this. And there's even like little classes where they teach that I see now during the class on how to get up your engagement and using AI. Totally. Know, no, oh, and it's it's like the next, you know, I, I get the same sort of, you know, messages and emails and everybody's an AI expert and everybody's got a session to sell or a webinar they want you to attend. So you know, it's great in the sense that it's a new tool that you can educate yourself in, but you've got to be selective about, you know, who are those real industry experts and, you know, where are you getting your information from and how can you really realistically use it to help improve your sort of your business, the functionality that it's best used for. So I actually asked AI, I said, this is who Eric Bauer is. What <laughs> questions would you ask him on my podcast? And this is some that they said was, is there a book, podcast, or resource that has profoundly impacted your approach to PR and communications? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So that's like an example, right? I mean, certainly, I think those are the types of questions that you can ask. And depending on who it is, you might get better, better sort of suggestions, right? But I do think it's an interesting time to sort of be able to use those types of tools. Yeah. And it turned out, it, it, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned in your career and how has it shaped the ethos of the Bauer Group? <laughs> <laughs> you can see like, it's good. It's just kind of, yeah, maybe a little bit more human. Totally. Yeah. And totally, I think, again, you could use that as a starting point and then build out on it. But to just take AI content right now and sort of, you know, use it as is, I think is a risk for sure. Yeah. And there's nothing more annoying than something that's so impersonal. It just feels so spammy to me. When I see it and it's like, oh. yeah, I use it for sure, but I tweak it and I make it my own because I want it to still sound like me. So hopefully that comes across, but it's also, it's frustrating making content. Some days it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say and nothing's coming out how I want it to come out. And I, and then you just don't post anything. Well, and I do the same thing. So even for myself, like I have a weekly blog that I publish on my website and sometimes it can be really challenging to come up with like, what what idea have I not covered yet? You know, what's something new and timely and relevant that I haven't talked about already? And, you know, in a situation like that, again, I find ChatGPT is really good at brainstorming. You know, what are um, some of the things that executives are sort of are thinking about when it comes to PR and communications? And you can sort of just generate a list and then all of a sudden, maybe there's a couple ideas that pop up that you, you didn't think of or you thought of in a different way. Uh, and then again, you know, it's like uh, that gives you that starting point that you can use to sort of expand on your own ideas. And in that way, I think it's really valuable for sure. You ever use, is it Answer the Public? Answer the public no. Yeah. Oh, so no. there's a website by Neil Patel and you can go in and you can see the most searched things relevant to your industry in a way that's like how, what, so that you can create content that answers those questions. So I could go in if I'm creating content for Lions Elite and plug in dating and see what people are searching right now. Like how to spot a narcissist? What is the biggest signs of a narcissist? Things like that. And then I can answer that with my content. That's genius, right? That is fantastic. I love that. I'm gonna have to check that out for sure. And then I can take that and I can plug that in and I can say to ChatGPT, what are some blog ideas or content ideas that you would use to answer all of these questions? And then I take that, I tweak it, make it my own. And then I put it back in there and say, edit this for me. Totally. And then also have it implement SEO strategies. And that's great too, right? And I think like that's an example. There's gonna be so many industries that are completely transformed, right? I even remember 
having conversation with friends 10 years ago about how coding, coding, everybody's got to get into coding, right? Coding is going to be the new sort of um, realm where if you want your kid to succeed, that you should get them to learn how to sort of code. And now it's like, you don't even need to code. You can use platforms that are sort of AI enabled to generate code without having to either like understand or write code itself. So, I mean, there's so many examples where I think AI is going to disrupt many different industries. And again, I think it'll be a really interesting sort of phenomenon to watch over the next, you know, three to five years. All right. Now, before we wrap up, I got to ask you this question from ChatGPT. <laughs> Eric, has there been a hilarious, unexpected, or just plain weird moment in your PR career that you can share with us? Hilarious or unexpected? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> just plain weird. Just plain weird. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think, you know... Certainly there has been, I think, a lot of, of moments that have taken me by surprise. I think this is going to be a bit cliched. It's not like it's a sort of a hilarious antidote. But I think for me, like just coming into the industry, it was really interesting to sort of to get a, a glimpse at, you know, how it's a very glamorous industry, right? A lot of people have this misconception that it's like red carpets and champagne and, you know, um, you know, after parties and, and, and then the like, yeah. And, you know, really when you come into it, you realize that, yes, that is true. That is kind of the end result in a lot of situations, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of grunt work, right? And it is a lot of, you know, vendor management and sourcing. It's a lot of liaising with clients and there's a lot of, sort of, you know, blue collar, nitty gritty work that goes into it, right? It just like sort of your world, certainly. And when you're dealing with events and things of that nature. So that was definitely one surprise for like a hilarious moment. I cannot think of anything off the top of my head. I think uh, that's, a, that's a tough question. ChatGPT has stumped me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, where can people find more information about you and the Bauer Group? Yeah, definitely. So I'm kind of pretty, pretty vocal on social. You can find me on LinkedIn. Definitely. You can check out the website. It's www.thebowergroup.ca. And yeah, feel free to just reach out on LinkedIn or drop me an email and uh, I'm always happy to chat. Amazing. Well, we'll link everything in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for your time today. You are just, you're awesome. Fantastic. And thank you for having me, Emily. I had a blast. <laughs> 